Civ Tech Talks podcast. I'm Evan DeBrew, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Ajay Jane. Hello, y'all. It's great to be back for the first time in a while. Yeah, it's been four weeks since we last recorded an episode. It simultaneously feels like we just recorded our last episode a week ago and almost a year ago. Uh, we do mean business today, so we're going to back off the banter a bit. Ajay, who do we have on the podcast this week? So, Evan, we're actually joined by two people this week. Tara Dawson McGinnis is the founder of the New Practice Lab at New America and teaches public problem solving at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. She is joined today by Hannah Shank. Hannah is the strategy director for public interest technology at New America and the co-author of The Government Fix and The Ambition Decisions. Today, Tara and Hannah came to discuss their book, Power to the Public, The Promise of Public Interest Technology. I can say that we both enjoyed the book and our conversation today. In fact, Evan, former President Barack Obama also enjoyed the book too. He just tweeted about it the other day, so it seems that Tara and Hana have his endorsement. Really? Oh, well then, we best not delay this any longer. We leave you now with our discussion with Tara Dawson McGinnis and Hana Shank. Hana and Tara, welcome to our podcast. Really excited to have you guys on today. So to start things off, first thing we wanted to ask you, pretty basic question, uh, why did you write Power to the Public? And why now in particular? We, um, you know, 2020 and 2021 are year one. It's hard not to see how much you need and depend on government, whether it was clarity about early early days of COVID-19, whether we need to wear masks or um, if, you know, for so many of our families, including mine, huge number of people around my Thanksgiving table and the McGinnis family leaned on unemployment insurance um, throughout this year. And so I think the COVID crisis really made pronounced how much we depend on the government to work in a digital age and how challenging that is. And so we, um, we wrote the book to really explain that there are people across the country and the globe who are really making government work, but they're having a very different approach to how they do things. And so we wrote it to make that work visible, to expand the number of people who are working in this way. But right now, uh, the pandemic really helped us, I think, clarify that it really makes a difference. Um, and so it's been an interesting year in which to be writing a book about making government work. So the next thing we want to ask you, and it's the key premise of this book, what is public interest technology and how can public interest tech help with policy work? So public interest technology is something that we have given, a, it's a, an existing an emerging practice that we've, been, we've given a name to. It's a practice that is grounded in three essential elements, data, informed by the use of real-time data to guide problem solving, design informed by real human needs, and a focus on delivery in order to continuously learn and improve. So these elements are not new on their own separately. They've been used 
a very long time. But uh, what is new is that, and part of why we wrote the book, is that people are using the combination of those three elements to solve problems and serve people better in the digital age. So to us, that signals the creation of a new field and also a new practice. And it's been termed public interest technology by those working in the field, but it also goes by plenty of other names. Yeah, definitely. And now kind of diving more into the book, you both begin your book by talking about the different backgrounds that y'all have and how you've come to this field today. Hana is a lifelong technologist who's spent time in the U.S. digital service and Tara in lots of policy roles. As policy people who got the power of this approach pretty early on, can you both say a little more as about how you evolved to come to where you're at now? Happy to start and then Hannah jump in. I mean, I think we come from different backgrounds, but ended up in the same work. So while we both served under President Obama, I worked in the White House and Office of Management and Budget in more policy and implementation and communications capacities. And Hannah came in from her life in in the private sector. Um, so we both worked under the same president, but my I'm kind of the nerdy public interest public, you know, public servant. I came in to do what people thought would be hard, the hard part of implementing Obamacare, which was we'd have this product that was well-priced and low cost or free health insurance available to millions of Americans. But some of the folks, the uninsured folks have historically been one of the most hard to reach populations across the country. And there was a concern that we would need a national campaign of a caliber that has never been seen using data to find these uninsured folks and make sure they get signed up. That was true, but that turned out not to be the first problem we encountered. First problem was that the it's hard to run a national campaign if when people come to your site to sign up, it doesn't work. And so when healthcare.gov went, you know, fell over sideways, I became a part of the team that worked on the implementation and getting things back order. That was a kind of government crisis management team. Um, so in some ways, that was maybe the the origin story of my biggest understanding of how important delivery was. I worked for maybe a decade on getting the Affordable Care Act passed and communicating about what was in it to the public. But going back earlier in my career, digitization came to the world of campaigns and advocacy with an intense shakeup in a way that it hadn't come to the government when I joined the government. So, you know, kind of organizations that only exist online from indivisible to moveon.org that, that the way that the digital revolution changed campaigns and how we raise money and even what an ad is that it's online was such a part of my early career that it was a bit surprising to see some of this toolkit of A-B testing and things that were normative in my organizing and campaign experience were just not used for things that were arguably more important. While it is good to have broad participation and many people raising dollars for candidates, boy, those same you know tools that would allow you to test an email that you send to millions of people who are getting health insurance or not getting health insurance seem really important. And that ability to test and retest and improve and just changing the font size or uh, the, the email header wasn't normative business of the federal government when it had been kind of normative practice for me in some of my other jobs. And so this is in some ways a thread that has pulled through my career. And I've become a really passionate translator of these tools through my policy and government management colleagues. Anna? Yeah, and I 
it's funny because we both sort of have uh, healthcare.gov as a pivot point, but I come to that from I came to that from completely the opposite angle, which was I had actually started my career in in politics as a and wanted to be a campaign person, and I went around the country and worked on a bunch of local races, which is what you do, and quickly determined that that was not what I wanted to do because I didn't want to live on couches. And also, I was the access database then, just <laughs> uh, which was like. The thing anyway so as i sort of followed the technology trail after that and that led me and i always have been a i've always been interested in user experience and focusing on users and so i kind of followed that and that took me to the private sector and i ran my own user experience and research consultancy for over a decade and then I watched as all of the press leading up to healthcare.gov and they kept saying, you know, this is the big, this is the day. And I kept thinking, that's a bad sign. <laughs> that's not going to go well. Cause I, I mean, I had never worked on a project that launched on the day. And I just was like, I can only imagine the legacy systems that are and the interoper interoperability issues. And so this is just not, it's going to be bad. And then it was bad. And I thought, I kind of saw that as a, as a call, like, that's a place where clearly I could I could do something and I could make a difference and I could be helpful. And it took me a while to find my way into public service, but I was able to through the U.S. Digital Service. And after that, there was not really any looking back. I just found it so much more rewarding and challenging and meaningful than the private sector. Yeah, definitely. And I've kind of felt pretty similar to going through my own you know, job search as well. I've done the whole campaign thing as well. I was most recently the Texas Democratic Party as their finance data analyst during the 2020 election. So the whole campaign world is definitely familiar with me as well as the whole government political side things as well and the private sector. So it's really cool just, you know, pairing up both of your journeys to how you got to where you are today and kind of segueing from that in terms of delivering projects. Hannah, when you just brought up the whole healthcare.gov, trying to deliver that on the first day, and then things just kind of, you know, exploding on the first day and things just going haywire and everything. And kind of segueing that more into the book, one of the things that comes up is service delivery, including its implementation with the American Rescue Plan. How does service delivery and getting these projects out, you know, efficiently and on time, how does it affect civic technologists? And what are the big opportunities for technologists to take up work in the public space? I think many, many aspects of the American Rescue Plan, ways that the government helps people in crisis, right? Rental assistance, unemployment insurance, mint money to aid states in getting vaccines in people's arms and tracking how well we're doing against that. An amazing expansion of how we support families with young children and the child tax credit. So all of these are services that reach not hundreds of thousands, but millions of Americans. And the government, the basic architecture of the government was designed in an era where, you know, horse and buggy, arguably early cars were normed. And in some ways, the bones of our government was not designed for the era that we live in. And so for civic technologists, Every aspect of these programs, you know, ignites the skills that are core to civic technologists, right? Let's just take one lane. Civic technologists did remarkable work outside the government um, over the past two years when the government fell down in tracking who had COVID and where is the progress of this disease. A ton of external technologists put themselves together and really modeled what the data the government should be doing is like through a series of projects, whether it was Johns Hopkins or the COVID data tracking project. 
Um, that work was highly impactful and grew better practices at the state and federal government. I think today there are open invitations for civic technologists, that is data scientists, analysts, to come in and do that work where we are now moved on from tracking, thank God, the progress of COVID to the progress of vaccination. But even on that front, vaccination is a multi-step um, process. You need to have and procure vaccines in abundance. You need to understand who's eligible for them and work with distributors to get them out. A lot of that ends up again back on a website, you know, and so having engineers, having kind of designers and researchers make sure that these websites both work, work for people are clear and understandable. And then on the back end, they really need the system of tracking. It's just one other example. I could, and you guys can stop me to go on about this, but I think they, this is the work of what Hannah and I do. The difference is whether this meets people where they are, right? It's fine to have allocated um, millions and billions of dollars for vaccinations, but it doesn't work until every last one of us is vaccinated. There's been truly remarkable progress in in a couple of months, going from kind of numbers that are zero to I think over 80% of seniors are vaccinated. It's really impressive, but it takes the skills of design, delivery, systems engineering, some of which have been put to play in kind of outside the government collaboration, but there are rules for all of these skills and, and folks who want to go do that. I'll add on to that. I think, you know, I, I was in the private sector when service design became a thing. There was a, a turning point where people were like, oh, you know, there are all these different channels. And actually, there if you add them all up, then you get the, the total experience. Because if you think about it, there we have so many more channels of communication now, and it, we didn't used to. If you think about, so government, I think, is now at that turning. It's now at that inflection point of starting to realize that, oh, we're actually in the service design business. And that's an aha moment for a lot of people. And actually, that's part of why we wrote this book was to try to create that aha moment more frequently and to get government thinking, multi-channel, cross-channel, all of the all the words that we we use in the private sector to talk about that work, that it, it all adds up, that these are, they, they all add up to how people feel about your program or the government in general. Also, considering the fact that, and obviously, once you get into government, it becomes enormously more complex because you are operating, you have a, you have a lot of different touch, touch points and a lot of different possibly even government entities in the same space who may not all, who may be sending different messages for, and to go back to the vaccine piece, you know, I think like right now you have messages from, I live in New York city, you have messages from the city, you have messages from the state. They even have two separate websites for signing up. So part of what we are hoping to shine a light on is actually you really need to be thinking about this in a service design, like in a service design way, nobody is sitting there and thinking, wait, do I complain to the city or the state? So is, you know, it's really a unified experience and that that shift in thinking needs to start happening more in government. We talked in a book about an amazing team that did this um, in the Midwest. There's a nonprofit service design nonprofit called Sevilla that worked collaboratively with the state of Michigan. It's kind of an amazing story. Michigan had the longest for benefits in the entire United States. The form was 42 pages long. It had 1,200 questions. And this is the form you fill out when you are in a crisis and you need help. You're about to lose your house. You need emergency cash. You know, nothing says help like a form that could roll down a hallway. <laughs> and um, one leader in a nonprofit in, in one of the Michigan United Ways 
just sort of saw this form and thought, this doesn't look like help and went on a mission. He took a leave of absence from his job at the nonprofit. He went out to Stanford D school and, and a couple of folks. And in the end, they, they spent a, a while with the people who fill out this form and really understood what it felt like. And they got permission to speak to frontline workers in the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services about their experience when they're trying to help people with this form. And they did a really bold thing. They didn't have a briefing. They didn't send a memo. They asked a, a very small number of senior government officials to come to a meeting at their office. And when they arrived at the meeting, instead of like welcome, welcoming them to a PowerPoint, they said, welcome to the benefits office here in Tech Town, Detroit, Michigan. I'm glad you're here to apply for benefits. And they basically did a simulation for these very senior officials about what it was like for the people who they serve. And it was really awkward. <laughs> for, you know, for 15 minutes, there weren't enough chairs. They used their research to re-simulate a government office. There were not enough chairs. There was a shortage of pens. It took too long. And they just pretended they were, you know, in this simulation. And after that experience... Many of the officials had never seen this form before. And then they walked them through kind of the words of the people who use the form and the words of their own employees who helped try to navigate people through the system. And on the spot, they committed to make this process better. And I think it's like a great example. One, you know, it was, it was kind of the civic technologist mindset of doing things differently that was critical to it. And two, it really often takes walking in the shoes and having a fundamentally different experience to say, like, we're going to need to shake this up a bit. And they did it. They cut the form in half. They, this serves 2.5 million people. It has real results every day. But it's just a great example of sort of how much service delivery matters, but also how it was like, there's no customer experience officer of the Michigan Health and Human Services Department before this process underwent. There very well may be one today because they all really get it now and do this as part of how their work happens. But it's an awesome story to just demonstrate what it's like and what people could go in to do in government. Yeah, these stories and concepts you cover, not just in this discussion, but in the book, on design data delivery will really stick with me. But what I really appreciated this book was that you also did not sugarcoat the process of solving these public problems. Now, this is something that's hinted at in these case studies early in the book and covered in more detail later, but solutions uh, to these problems can be time-consuming, hard to deliver upon, and the technology or data uh, could be used inappropriately. And sometimes even if the solution shows promise in the short term, it can fall apart quite quickly. So why did you want to highlight these ideas in your book? Part of we, we, we wanted to be realistic. So we didn't want to present people with something that they wouldn't be able to, to take on or that they would, they would take on without actually knowing the full details. You know, we are hoping that people will read the book and then immediately start thinking about how to apply the, how to put the concepts into practice. But we, so if people are going to do that, we felt that it was important to say, actually, it's is not going to be it's not going to be quick. This isn't a thing that you go in and you have it, you know, up tomorrow. One of the stories that we tell in the book is about this the integrated benefits project in in the state of Vermont. In so Vermont was interested in streamlining how people apply for for benefits, and they worked with Nava, a public benefits corporation, to to see if there were pain points that they could streamline. And one of the things that Nava saw was that there were there's a tremendous amount of documentation required when you apply for benefits. And very frequently what people do is what people would do is they would physically drive the documents to the office because 
they didn't trust the post office and these were sensitive documents. Unfortunately, the office, the government office was only open during normal business hours. So if you are requesting assistance and you also have a job, which is uh, the scenario for the vast majority of people, you can't drop your forms off during the day. So there, they had a, so Nava and state of Vermont had this theory that if people could upload their documents from home, it would actually make things much faster. So they looked at one thing that they did that we loved was they set really good metrics. They looked at how, at the amount of time for how long it took from people, the time that people applied until they got approved. And it was nine days on average. And they, what they then did was they built this uploader and they started with a very, very small pilot. It's another thing that we love about this story. It was with 50 people. They sat down and they saw how long does it take someone from the Nava team sat with Jimmy in the Barry office and he went through 50 applications and he saw how long and the Nava team timed to see how long that and they said, okay, now we have know what time it is, how long this, this process takes on the processing end. Let's see if we can make it faster. And they built this small uploader and the uploader was really successful. And it ended up being rolled out statewide. People were able to get their determinations sometimes within 24 hours. So nine days to really, really fast for government, especially. And part of the reason, so as we were telling this story, we it was actually still continuing on and we were still reporting on it. And there was a really interesting twist that we thought was 100% worth going in the book, which was that Nava built the uploader and then the state of Vermont chose to open up, to put an RFP out. So, so let me back up for a minute. So part of the issue was that they wanted to start well, to start with a small project, the state of Vermont. So 50 people, uploader, start, rolled it out, great. Now, And it was supposed to be, this is the first step in a larger process to, in a larger project to really rethink how people apply for benefits. But with every project, you need a new procurement. So that was all happening in the background as we were writing the book and Nava ended up choosing not to bid on the procurement, which was primarily a maintenance contract. So in the middle of this success story, we had COVID hit. We had the stakeholders start to get nervous. There were some key stakeholders who left the state of Vermont to do other projects. So the internal support was really not there. And for now, that project is, there's this cute uploader, which is work, which is awesome and really works. But that's as far as the state of Vermont is going to go today. That said, it's a great story in the kind of work that the kind of change that you can have we tell it as an illustration of starting small and scaling, but I think it's also a really good illustration of this work takes a long time. And this is an example of here was one step forward, two steps back. Hopefully they're going to be, you know, they're now set up to take more steps forward. And it's hard work. You know, I think I'm glad you asked Evan, because I think one of the, one of the dangers that we talk about in the book is that because the work is so hard, people often engage in magical thinking. Like, will your app solve my really complicated, broken process? No. Technology can really advance things when applied to a root problem. It can also really speed up broken processes that aren't working. 
um, or override things you can't see. And so we wanted, we wanted to show that some of the big change really does take a while and that there are light things you could do. This test was stood up really quickly. And if the momentum and wind behind its sales was, you know, continued, what, you know, nine days to 24 hours is a dramatic impact for an entire state. But we wanted to be really real that I think uh, sometimes, you know, hard work is hard work and it involves technology, but cultural change and really understanding what the problem, you know, is on the business process. You can improve forms, the front end pretty quickly, but if nobody processes them on the back end, sometimes that's a lot harder. It involves a government procurement. So I'm really glad you asked about it. It's We want to encourage people to stick with it. The big change happens over time. Yeah. You know, I appreciate the realism about these government projects. And also like I've been part of groups that fall into this trap of like, oh, we can just use technology, analyze this process or automate this process or whatever. And it's just endlessly frustrating when I see like to know like this doesn't, this isn't always the case. Like it won't always improve what you're trying to, what you're trying to do when with other systems or forms you're trying to use. So yeah, I, I appreciated the discussion about like, you know, when you talk about Ellis and how like they couldn't, they tried to build this very large system and build it out over a number of years and then it just completely failed to launch. And it's something that will definitely stick with me when I go on to my other jobs in the public sector. To somewhat expand on that, what sort of recommendations do you have for organizations to help bridge knowledge gaps and allow technologists and public servants to work more cohesively? I'm happy to jump in and Hannah, feel free. I mean, there are an amazing number of organizations in this space now. The ecosystem, even in the time that Hannah and I have been working together, has expanded so vastly. But there, you know, if you're in government and you want to learn more about these tools, there are you know, tr- training services. If you're working in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, a number of groups self-organized something called the OPEX Academy that allows them to share data hacks across the city with other folks who are uh, working on data across the city. Peak Academy in Colorado. There's, if you're in government, there's ways to kind of engage in in upskilling. If you're outside or you're early, like you're um, in school, many of my students at the McCourt School at Georgetown work hard to land as a data scientist internships with organizations that aren't that data savvy, but bring these data skills to apply to important nonprofits that are working on lifting up vulnerable people. I think there's plenty of ways to engage, whether it's the Presidential Innovation Fellow, Public Management Fellowship, Fuse Fellows for folks who are a little more mid-career, you know, the Code for America brigades are a great place for anyone to engage in the cities that they're in. There are plenty of gateway organizations now that honestly didn't exist when Hannah and I uh, were graduating from school. We do, we try to give people a guide. So in the back of the book, we have a, if you're looking for places to go and <laughs> things to read first, we do have a little bit of a map, but I feel pretty confident that, that that will get outdated very quickly given the just breadth and growth of the ecosystem right now. And one thing that people can do that's a pretty low lift is to just ask why and really work to unpeel the onion of to get to the root of problems. So there isn't really any special training required to ask why. Ask why is it this way? Why is this is this piece of paper required to be blue because someone likes blue or because it actually serves a purpose? Is the reason that we ask all of these questions on this form is that actually 100% required, important, necessary. Where are those going? Where where does that information go? Where are the, where's how's that going to be used in the future? So obviously, once you you know dig a little bit deeper, you might need to bring in the experts. But we do make the point in the book that this is really everybody's work. 
And a lot of that work is comes down to asking questions. So I want to segue this a little bit from organizations to public technologists working with, you know, legislative members. And one of the things that is mentioned in the middle of the book is that when drafting policy, one should map how it gets to the public and what agencies are going to enforce and enact that legislation. And as someone who used to intern for a member of Congress, this concept really intrigued me and kind of led me to wonder, can there and should there be ways that members of the public interest tech community and civic tech community work with congressional offices and think tanks in order to draft more efficient legislation. Yes. Our colleagues run something called Tech Congress, which is um, an effort to put technologists into congressional offices and bring this skill set and set of expertise to the table where various issues are being drafted. It's been really successful on bringing kind of extra skills to oversight of areas from, you know, uh, internet and technology companies where, where you know, there's not as clear clear a path to be a former white hat hacker um, and then go advise a member of Congress as there might be to graduate from law school and do so. And that's exactly what they've done. Let me give you one other example. Over the past year, our team stood up a collaboration as many, many 29 million Americans were losing their jobs. And you could see in, in news articles across the country, websites administered by the states crashing left and right. There was a big active policy debate about the size of the checks and the way these policies were constructed. And uh, myself and my colleagues were sitting around and saying, yeah, but also like nobody's getting through the door (laughs) or there may may be many more people knocking. And so we set up a project led by a a user researcher, Dana Chisnell, um, through something called Project Redesign. She's now during the Biden administration and our new practice lab. And we did what she described as user research in the open. In real time, we did user research with folks across the country who were trying to um, and succeeding and failing applying for unemployment insurance. And we made research instead of waiting till the end of a sprint, we made our research sinks. We put some safeguards in place for how data was shared available to anyone, Hill staff, nonprofit, analysts, government, you know, folks who work in the Department of Labor. We just tried to spread the word. If you want to call in for 30 minutes and hear 19, what it was really like stories, we will walk you through that and share the synthesis. And I think that's the beginning of a process. We've, we heard back that it, from many Hill staff that it really helped you now $2 billion has been put in the latest legislative package for modernizing these websites. I think the ability to really walk in the shoes of people applying was probably an important aspect so that you can get overly obsessed with the total amount of money. And I am the policy nerd who would get that, but but it doesn't really matter if it's $300 a week or $400 a week, if it takes you four months and then you get rejected, even though you're eligible, because you have a two character last name, like many Asian Americans do. That is just not recognized by a website. So I think, and that is a like that's not a that is a real problem that I've just described for for other websites hyphenated last names, which is a real problem. And so I think these bake in biases into the way we're servicing people that we can't even see um, unless you talk to a lot of folks about what it's like and notice a trend line. So that's the sort of work that I think we I hope to see more of. I think as you think about what a policy think tank is in the future, the ability to demonstrate not only the economic analysis of how a policy will work, but really the like, will it help? Will it reach people analysis is going to be a muscle that we're trying to build. And I know many, many others are. And I will add, since you raised Congress, Congress is in terms of we have, we are able to see sort of a bird's eye view of the field in a way that just by the nature of 
where we're positioned as a think tank. And one of the things that we've seen is Congress is a little bit of a black hole at the moment. There is a lot of public interest technology work happening at the federal level. Some of it is happening at the state level and the municipal level. But Congress is a tough nut to crack. So I think part of why we wrote this book also is to try to crack it from the inside. I don't know if that's an analogy that works, but that the people who who go who go to work in Congress, policy people, should get curious about how their policy how the policy decisions that they are proposing actually meet user needs, work for people, get to people. The way that government used to deliver is used to delivering services. Government is really old. Government is used to delivering services via you line up or the mail, maybe later the fax for, for anyone who still has a fax machine. And a lot of those pipelines aren't really or either aren't available or aren't how we're used to, how the public is used to interacting with any entity. So to have a, so I think there has been a change really in the last five to 10 years where the people who are making the policy also need to think, start thinking about delivery and how the services actually get to people. It's not enough to just say, here's the intervention or here is what we're going to put in place. The, it's critical to look at the entire picture. Okay, so segueing from, you know, working with members of Congress in order to get effective policies passed, one of the main audiences that we have for this podcast are college students and early career professionals who want to jump into civic technology and public interest technology and just get their their feet wet into utilizing technology for social good. And there are a lot of organizations that act as a pipeline for college graduates who want to serve their communities, such as the Peace Corps and Teach for America. However, it seems evident that we need a pipeline for college students who are in STEM to join civic tech and public interest tech organizations, since, as it's stated in the book, it would be unusual to meet an undergraduate from a top university who aspires to work in the civil service. And additionally, what is phrased later on in the book as well is, once people get a taste of the impact they can have in government, they're hooked. So how do we give college students a taste of government so they become hooked on utilizing technology for social impact? So this question actually drives a lot of our work at New America. We have a a university network with the aim of training future policy people in, in technology, but also with the goal of letting people who are interested in technology know that they can have a career in public service. So part of the part of what needs to happen is stoking the pipeline. The other piece of the work is making sure there are jobs for these early career professionals with a tech background, with a tech and policy interest to get involved. And to tell you the truth, this is an area that needs more work. There are some organizations like Coding It Forward who are really active in the space and doing amazing things. I, But Tara and I have talked a lot about how it seems like you expect there's going to be a flood of interest from current, from recent graduates on, well, the country needs help. How do I do that? And I think that one of the best ways to do that is to be somebody who is tech fluent and go work in government. That's a little bit of a tricky thing to do right now. As we said, a lot of the top graduates are not lining up to go into the civil service. People aren't thinking, oh, you know, what would be really cool would be to work for the city. 
Um, nobody, very few people are thinking that way and think that, oh, you know, the, the tech sector has done a really good job of selling itself and government needs to do a better job of selling itself because the impact that you can have truly is addicting. I think that a lot of public interest technologists who come to this work from the private sector are like, wait, millions of people are going to be affected by this? Really? And it's not which soap they're going to buy. So that's really, that's really empowering and inspiring for a certain group of people. But definitely there needs to be more work on creating those, those pathways. Including paid internships. And, the, you know, part of the, I think many people raise their hand, but they get a job offer from somewhere else before they hear back um, from something they've applied for for the city or for the federal government. And so the ability for governments to be responsive to folks and, and you know, things like Peace Corps have a pathway in to help on the hiring and it makes a difference. You have huge numbers of Peace Corps volunteers who work as in the federal government. And so really there is progress that needs to be made on how the government government, city or federal hire and compete how they, you know, spend time. Like I did when I was in the federal government, I took time to go to places that I had studied and tell people how meaningful the work was and how important it is. And I don't want to undercut, you know, when I was an undergraduate, it was the peak of the kind of financialization of the economy. And it didn't matter if you were an urban planner or you studied English poetry. If you were top in your class, a bank came and told you and tried to woo you to come work at my college. And I think we need to be competitive about seeking the best and brightest and making the opportunity to work, um, not something you know that you uh, lose family wages on. And so I think paid internships, uh, the, a way to bring you know first-generation college graduates into the government is really critical. And for any of your listeners, there is nothing like serving your city, county, state, or country. If you think something is broken, it is ours to fix. There's nobody, as Mikey Dickerson, our former colleague, described from the U.S. Digital Services, there's no one coming to fix this. This is ours. And so, you know, if you spend proportional energy kind of tweeting or or into figuring out what your bit is, the, the country needs you. The, the, not just that coming out of crisis, but that which ails us is formidable. But the opportunity to fix it. It is ours. And so I really hope anyone listening who has one, you know, iota of sense that this is what you want to do, there is a place for you. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for your time. Yes. Thank you so much to the both of you for coming on. Power to the Public by Tara McGinnis and Hannah Schenk. It is an excellent book. I truly enjoyed reading it and I can't wait for our listeners to read it too. today we wanted to make some announcements. Uh, there was good reason for us to be off the air for so long. Uh, Jay, do you have something you would like to tell our listeners? Yes, I just started a new job working on software solutions for local journalism to help redesign public notices for the 21st century. I'm really excited about the work I'll be helping out on to empower local newspapers moving forward. Well, that is wonderful, Jay. I will also be starting a new job I'm going to be working as a statistician for the government starting on April 26th. And if that does sound ambiguous, that's because I'm trying not to violate my ethics clauses. So yes, dear listeners, our prolonged time off the air has been due to our career transitions, which brings us to a third announcement. We will be taking some time off the air from the podcast for the next few months. 
while we adjust to our new jobs and hopefully our new abodes. I definitely don't want to be living here for too much longer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do live in Wisconsin, Evan. <laughs> Although this does bring an end to season one of the Civ Tech Talks podcast, we will work on planning for the next episode of the podcast during our time off. You may even see some more special episodes of the Civ Tech Talks podcast over the summer. So please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, Ajay, do you want to wrap up season one for us? Of course, Evan. Thanks to Tara Dawson McGinnis and Hannah Schenk for joining us on this episode of the Civ Tech Talks podcast. Please make sure to check out their book, Power to the Public, The Promise of Public Interest Technology. Please give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at Civ Tech Talks. If you're interested in civic tech opportunities, please consider joining Impactful. You can find more information at weareimpactful.org. And finally, we'd like to thank you all for continuing to listen and support our podcast. We could not have done this without you, and we are looking forward to producing more Civ Tech Talks content for you all in the future. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.